Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, episode five of this Acts of the Holy Spirit series. And so far this season, we've spent time introducing uh, the book of Acts, and we've looked at how those early disciples carried the responsibility um, of starting this movement called Christianity that would carry on for the last 2,000 years. I mean, the church was, was established the day that Jesus ascended to heaven. We've, we've walked through Acts 1, and, and we've got a, a real understanding of what happened once the disciples of Jesus left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem as, as they were commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. The 120 gathered together continually. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. They had their first church business meeting. And the main order of that business meeting was, was to appoint a new disciple or, or apostle, as the 11 were, were now called. They did what they were called. They opened the Old Testament scriptures. They prayed. They, they sought God's guidance. And they got organized. They, they got prepared. We saw in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came. And this was by God's design to inaugurate the birth of the church. We are the church. This, the book of Acts, this is our story. This is our history. We, we are essentially seeing the birth of the church through the lens of the Holy Book, through the book of Acts. In Acts 1, the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, he arrived. In Acts 1, the disciples were equipped for their ministry. In Acts 2, the disciples were uh, empowered for their ministry. In Acts 1, the disciples, they were held back and made to wait. And then in Acts 2, man, they were sent out. And Peter immediately preached his first sermon and the, the Holy Spirit convicted 3,000 hearts and the church went from a group of, of the, the 120 to 3,120 in one day. I mean, we're talking a mega church in a few hours. And last week we spent our time in Acts 4 and 5 and we saw uh, the church continue to expand as Peter and John faithfully and boldly stayed the course as they, they led the church. They healed and they preached, and the church continued to grow at a rapid pace. It grew so fast that the religious elite began to catch on, and, and this brought on real persecution. The honeymoon for the early church, it was over. They began experiencing some very real opposition, and that would only increase every day that went by. Why? Well, because they continued to defy man and comply only with the Lord. I mean, this was a serious offense to the religious leaders of the day. But as we left off last week, the boldness the early church lived with was off the charts. And, and it, was, it was something to, to aspire to. So today, we, we begin episode 5, picking up where we left off last week. We open up to Acts 5 and we see the church is, is approximately a few years old. The church had, had really become a force at this point. 
They were under heavy persecution. So it's obvious they are doing something right. But through this, Satan was active. And we talked about his first acts against the church being heavy persecution. And that, that wasn't returning him exactly what he wanted. The church was still blowing up. So his attempt to, to put out the fire, it backfired in his face. God's eternal purpose was, was being unfolded. His eternal power was being unleashed. The pressure that the church faced was pouring gas on an already blazing fire. At this point, Satan knew that if he was going to do damage to the church, it wasn't going to happen from the outside. He, he was going to have to get on, in the, get on the inside. Enter Ananias and, and Sapphira. Here we, we, we come face to face with the first recorded incident of sin in the church. This is, this is the beginning, and sin has had a foothold ever since. This is the, the heartbreaking beginning of what all generations of believers throughout all history and all places and all churches have had to face. This reality that Satan goes to church. Satan influences the church. Guys, Jesus warned us about this. He, he said that Satan would sow tares among the wheat. And what do you think he meant by that? And Jesus commanded us, guys, as, as the church, to confront sin and expel the sinner who would not repent. And this is what happened on the day sin first entered the early church. And guess what? Sin is still in the church. Sinners are in the church. And that's just truth. Guys, we're all sinners and are all equal at the foot of the cross. I mean, look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I mean, look, look at the categories for members of the church, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. So which category do you fall under? Friends, this is who we are. We are unruly in, in, in the sense that we break the rules that God has ordained. We are faint-hearted and weak in the sense that we fail. I mean, these are accurate uh, characterizations of who we are. But again, this is the church. We, we are an assembly of redeemed sinners. But it was in Acts 5 that sin entered the church, and it entered the church through Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter had to deal with it. But before we look at what Ananias and Sapphira did and how God dealt with it, let's look at the preceding verses. Acts 4, 32-37, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was, was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So this was just an element um, of, of church life. And the scriptures up to this point were saying it was all beautiful and joyful and, and sacrificial and loving and unified. And, and this was a, a great illustration of, of, the, of that genuine unity and love and, and sacrifice. And when we read this text, the question I ask is, would I go this far to meet the needs of people around me? I mean, if I'm honest, I've never thought about selling anything to give it away. And that seems very radical. I mean, can you imagine being willing to sell your house and give the money to those in need? I mean, here in America, we could never. I, I think about it every time I ride by one of those, um, those storage places, you know, the storage units. Here in America, we have storage units built on every corner. I mean, guys, full-blown businesses that make a living off of our obsession of stuff. We have so much stuff that we need to rent a space to hold it. I mean, forget the fact that we have a, a house to store our stuff. We need another entire unit to fill. Guys, we, we attach way too much importance to stuff. But not the early church that they sold their possessions so that no one in the church went without. That that's what the early church did. They didn't view their belongings as their own. I mean, this is, this is how Barnabas saw it as well. And he sold a piece of property and gave 100% of the proceeds to the church leaders to help those in need. And then here come Ananias and Sapphira. And they followed the example of Barnabas. I mean, understand that those who were giving sacrificially were receiving praise and honor. What they did was noble. Ananias and Sapphira decided they wanted to get in on this. They had watched all this going on and they, they wanted to get in on some of the accolades. So they sold a piece of property and, and they, instead of giving 100% to the, to, to the apostles, they kept back some of the proceeds of the sale. So Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, brought part of the proceeds to the apostles saying it was the full amount. The pretense was, we've sold it all. We, we bring it all and it, it's all here just as the others had done. They get in line to draw attention to themselves. Exactly what they wanted all along. Guys, th their motives were dark. The, the sin is not that they didn't give. The sin is not that they didn't give enough. And guys, in the New Testament, th there's no amount or percentage. The, the sin is that they lied. God hates lying. And how do I know they lied to God? Well, if you read Acts 5.3, it says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Of course they lied to Peter and John and the apostles, but they also lied to the Holy Spirit. They had vowed to the Holy Spirit and the apostles and the church that they were giving the full price of the sale, and they weren't. But their sin is a form of hypocrisy. And this was, was a lie that was intended to make them look spiritual. They, they sought to gain prestige and high praise for their low sin. They, they thought they... Uh, they would be applauded for their sacrifice. And in secret, they kept some of the cash. They, they wanted both advantages. They, they are essentially like the Pharisees from Matthew 6, doing their alms before men to be seen. Essentially living a lie. Guys, God hates liars and he hates when people live a lie. Especially when a person is lying about their spiritual condition. He, he calls these people hypocrites. Guys, hypocrites love to be elevated. They want people to think highly of them. And is the church full of hypocrites? Absolutely. None of us live as we ought to live. None of us live perfectly. 
N none of us live lives that are Christ-like. We, we should be honest and stop pretending that we do. We should admit our sin and stop hiding it. And this is exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were doing here. And God was going to send a harsh message to the church. This would be what God would choose to inaugurate our understanding of sin in the church. The sin of hypocrisy. Pretending to be something that you're not. And this is one sin that we must address in the church always. This is a sin Jesus addressed in Matthew 23. Go read that chapter and you will get a front row seat to see how God feels about it. And at this point, Peter could have rationalized the situation. He could have swept the whole thing under the rug. I mean, think about how church leaders might handle this today. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira were some of the wealthier people in the congregation. The church needed the money they were, they were given and showing the donors respect and honor was important. I mean, the church was booming and people were converted. This was a, a glorious time. There, there was so much love and, and so much unity. I mean, we would ask the question, I mean, why even confront this situation and, and, and cause a stir? The issue with this mindset? This is a mindset of a compromiser. But not Peter. I mean, as soon as Ananias comes to church ready to receive praise and honor, Peter confronts him right in front of everyone. It's Acts 5, 3-4 that says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, did, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So the first sin identified in the life of the church is lying to God. It's hypocrisy. And the consequences were harsh. I mean, the Lord shows us how he feels about it by executing the two hypocrites right in front of the entire church. I mean, Peter had just confronted Ananias. Acts 5, 5 through 6 says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out to be buried. So we, we see the judgment is swift and it's, it's terminal. I mean, God moves fast to remove this cancer from the church. I mean, can you, can you imagine this happening today? I mean, how many of us would drop dead in church because of our hypocrisy? Probably every single one of us. But on this day, God, God deals with it. And this man drops dead right in front of the whole congregation. And immediately they bury him. And it's three hours later that his wife's fire comes in, not knowing what happened. And she follows her, her, her husband's example and lies to the Holy Spirit, lies to the apostles and, and lies to the whole church. And what happens? She drops dead right in front of the church and then is buried right next to her husband. And Acts 5.11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah, I, I bet great fear came on the church. I mean, this had to be a very sobering day. A great fear of God swept through this body of believers. This is a holy terror. This is a holy fear. These people see that the Lord is serious about his church. God hates the sins of the saints, that they corrupt his church. Purity is critical to the church and in the power of the church and the testimony of the church. And guys, you and I, what we our takeaway, we must grasp. We must grasp this truth. So as we move on in this story, we, we see that the church continues to grow. Acts 6.1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, 
And we see, as it was exploding, structure and order needed to be established. I mean, at this point, the church is large. I mean, the church is significantly large. The church was likely numbering in the thousands and likely the tens of thousands by the time we get to Acts 6. So it didn't take long after the birth of the church that they had a very complex set of conditions that had to be met. A large number of of people being added to the church every day. People being baptized. People gathering for the Lord's Supper. People gathering in homes for meals. People gathering on the first day of the week needing to hear the word of God. And this demanded someone needing to be there to be uh, to, to open the truth of God and, and to explain to them the meaning of the Old Testament as, as fulfilled in Christ. Someone had to know the needs of all these people. Someone had to, to process the meeting of those needs. Someone had to lead ongoing discipleship. And there is so much more that was needed. At the end of the day, this demanded structure within the church. This demanded organization. Delegation had to happen because the apostles, they were only a few guys. They weren't able to do it all. And the apostles were the key to the church. They had the revelation from God. They were the ones who had been with Christ. They were the teachers and they needed to stay the teachers. Up to this point, they were the resource for all the questions the new converts needed to have answered. But as the church grew and ministry flourished, they needed to get organized and they needed to raise up leaders. They needed to delegate. Why? Well, because things were likely becoming inefficient. Things were likely becoming chaotic. Problems were arising and they needed structure if this church was going to continue to flourish and grow. And that is what we see in Acts 6 as leaders were established. We also see, remember what I said, disciples were increasing. Guys, understand the word disciple means learner. So these converts were learning Christ. They were students of Jesus, true followers of Jesus. And one of those students was Stephen. And Stephen was a standout leader. He he was a Hellenistic Jew. And this just means that he was one of the Jews who had probably traveled uh, to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost and and was converted. He he may have been one of the Jews present on the day of Pentecost who heard Peter preach and and received salvation and was baptized. Stephen was one of the seven men chosen by the congregation to be responsible over the distribution of, of food to the widows in the early church after a lot of dissension and disunity broke out and arose and the apostles recognized they needed help. The Bible says Stephen was also full of God's grace and full of God's power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. And just a little side note, Stephen was one of two men the Bible says did signs and wonders other than the apostles. Barnabas was the other. So you have the apostles and then you have Stephen and Barnabas who were the only men recorded doing great wonders and signs among the people. So we need to understand, guys, signs and wonders were not something that all Christians did. It was truly a very select few, according to Scripture. But here in Acts 6, Stephen takes the stage. Acts 6.8 through Acts 7.60 is where Stephen becomes the main character. For an entire chapter in the book of Acts, he steals the show. And I just want to point out that someone that takes up this much real estate in the Bible is, is, is unique. And we need to take a, a, a very close look at who he was. So I think it's important that we just take a moment and we look at what the scriptures say about Stephen. I mean, what an amazing man Stephen was. He, he, he wasn't a deacon. Deacons didn't come till later. 
He, he was put in charge of serving tables. He, he wasn't an apostle, but he did signs and wonders. That the miraculous power granted to the apostles was extended to him. He wasn't a prophet, but a great preacher. Stephen was a, a very unique man. And he stands between the apostles and the, the, the structure of the early church uniquely. And Stephen is, is a very overlooked person in the early church, mainly because he had a very short life. I mean, the church at this point is very new and very young, and that means Stephen is a very new believer. But based on what we see in Acts 7, Stephen had a vast understanding of the Old Testament. He, he, he was the first Christian martyr, and, and we need to know him. Stephen was a man who was great by every divine measure. He was full of everything that every uh, believer should be full of. He's an example. We need to understand that the testimony that had been preached to the Jews by Peter and the apostles was soon to be closed, and the testimony to the Gentile world begun by Paul was soon to be opened. So Stephen essentially was the bridge between uh, Peter and Paul. He, he was chosen by Peter and the apostles and was martyred at the hands of Saul, who would later be called Paul. And so we need to understand, again, Stephen is essentially the bridge between Peter and Paul. Stephen didn't preach to the Israeli Jews. He didn't preach to the foreign Gentiles. He preached to the foreign Jews. He, he preached to his own people. And Stephen would be the catalyst for the dispersion of the church. It was because of his martyrdom that the next great wave of persecution came, and this caused the church to scatter out of Jerusalem. And, and that, was, that was the purpose of God in his martyrdom because Jesus had said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And right now, they're just in Jerusalem. So what, what was going to send them to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? I mean, not, not a missionary mission, but persecution, but martyrdom, the, the threat of death. So, so we see that it is this very death of Stephen that becomes the catalyst to fulfill the promise Jesus made to his disciples before his ascension. Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. And check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? We see that Stephen's ministry was extremely short, but the impact would carry on for eternity. I mean, we, we see no results documented of his great preaching, but we do see a major shift after his death. I mean, Stephen was the forerunner of Saul of Tarsus, who would literally watch him be crushed to death under the bloody stone as he held all the robes of the executioners. Yes, Stephen was the forerunner of Saul, who would later be renamed Paul. I mean, it's almost as if in this crazy turn of events, Stephen is handing the torch off to Saul, who was actually Stephen's most bitter enemy. In fact, it would be the Apostle Paul who owes much of his exposure to the gospel to this, this sermon that Stephen preached here in Acts 7. 
very briefly, let's just look at this story to get the context. But I, I really would encourage you to go read Acts 6, 8 through Acts 7, 60 to see how this went down because it's powerful and it, it's really, it's worth a slow walkthrough. There's so much to learn. But Acts 6, 9 says that, the, that one day Stephen was approached by some foreign Jews and, and they began to debate with him, but none of them could stand against Stephen because of his wisdom and, and the spirit in which he spoke. As a side note, it may have been, and this is not a stretch, that the one leading the argument against Stephen was Saul. And Saul would have certainly been great at arguing and making his case. I mean, think about this. Two brilliant minds, Stephen and Saul, battling over divine truth. And guess what? Stephen won. Why? I mean, was he a greater debater than Saul? No. The, the difference is Stephen had the truth on his side and he was full of the Holy Spirit. So in their frustration and agitation, those who lost the debate to Stephen persuaded those in attendance to go lie that Stephen had committed blasphemy against God and Moses and the law and the temple. They, they all agreed with this plan and went and did exactly that. And this really caused a stir amongst the leaders. I mean, this, this, this indictment against Stephen was worthy of death. So the elders and the teachers of religious law arrested Stephen and brought him back before the high council. And as Stephen stood before the judges, the lies continued to mount up as they stood and stared at Stephen. Acts 6.15 says, as they stared at Stephen, his face began to shine as bright as an angel. And when we turn over to Acts 7, and this chapter opens up with the, with the high priest asking Stephen if the accusations were true. Stephen's reply consisted of a long history of Old Testament prophecies, starting with Abraham to Joseph, from Joseph to Moses, from Moses to Joshua, and then finally Joshua all the way to David. And I'm sure there's much Stephen said on this day to these men that wasn't recorded. I mean, we know that all the sermons recorded in Acts are, are truly the Notes version. We just get the short version. But on this day, let's say that Stephen shows us he's a very solid apologist. He, he laid out a very convincing defense to these men in the crowd, and it left them undone. That they had nowhere to turn because Stephen had completely turned the tables on them and backed them in a corner, and they had nowhere to go. It was an absolute beatdown as he masterfully walked right through the Old Testament and showed them who the real blasphemers were. And a little side note regarding apologetics. Guys, apologetics is a speech in defense. And we as believers have to understand why it's so absolutely critical that we not sentimentalize Christianity. We have to give a reasonable biblical defense of our faith. Not, not some kind of pie in the sky, emotional, romanticized idea that has nothing to do with truth. And that's the reason um, that Christians have so many, so many issues today. You know, we, we just run around telling people that Jesus is alive because he lives in our heart. It's like, guys, that's nonsense. He lives because he rose from death. I mean, that's an example of, of giving a biblical defense of our faith. And, and the way we reason with people, it's got to rise out of divine revelation. And in Acts 7, Stephen gives a defense of the faith, and it rises completely from the Old Testament and the Gospels. Stephen shows us in his example how to do this by allowing the word to be our guide. And by the way, the only word Stephen had was the Old Testament. And like the other disciples, he had come to understand how the entire Old Testament led to Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Stephen preached on this day. And look at how Stephen ends his walk through the Old Testament. I mean, Stephen wraps up his sermon in Acts 7, 
51 through 53 by saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, th this is pretty bold. I mean, the whole thing is beyond bold. This is one, of, one very courageous move to be standing in front of some of the most powerful men in Jerusalem who literally had the ability to have you wiped off the planet in minutes. I mean, these men were hardcore apostates and Stephen called them out. Here they were resisting all the promptings of the Holy Spirit and Stephen called them out. They were part of the same history of, of killing the prophets and now responsible for the, for the killing of the, the very righteous one himself, Jesus. And Stephen called them out for it. Stephen shared an uncompromised gospel that he learned from his teachers. Stephen confronted them boldly and dynamically with a frontal attack from the word, using the sword of the spirit. And he took that sword and he did a masterful job of stabbing it deep into their hearts. These men in attendance were wounded. Remember, this is exactly how Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3 and 4. The gospel was preached and the guilty were exposed. And the hearts of these evil men were put on display. And Stephen was willing to say what he said because he believed so strongly in, in the God of the Old Testament. And he believed in the Old Testament itself. Remember exactly what he was accused of. He's being accused of being a blasphemer of God, a blasphemer of Moses, a blasphemer of the law, a blasphemer of the temple. When in all actuality, it was these men who, who truly were the blasphemers and he showed them based on what scripture said. And they, they had nowhere to turn. Not only that, but Stephen believed so strongly in the Lord Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his own hope of eternal life and his welcome into heaven that he was willing to bet his own life on it. He, he was right in the will of God even in this dangerous and in hostile situation. We look to Acts 7, 54 through 60, and it lays out graphically how these men responded. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. At this point, Stephen knew his fate, so he did as Colossians 3 says. He set his affections on things above and not on, on, on things of the earth. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And by the way, these very words that Stephen just said were very familiar to this same council because another prisoner had said the same very thing. Another prisoner had stood before this same court who was charged with the same offense of blasphemy. And that other prisoner, it was none other than, than our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 14 lays out the scene very well. The high priest had put Jesus on oath and said, tell me plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus said he was going to heaven. And when he got there, he would be at the right hand of God. That, that was the final blasphemy they would ever tolerate from Jesus. And it would lead to his murder. And just like that night, when the son of God stood before them, these men had heard enough. This was the breaking point. These men went into a rage and they ground their teeth at Stephen. This is a level of anger that left them completely out of control. And so they rushed at him. They put their hands on him. They dragged him out of the city. And as they got to the place to execute him, they, they took off their robes. They dropped their robes at the feet of Saul. 
the instigator, and began to stone Stephen. And why did they drop their robes at the feet of Saul? Well, well this, again, it identifies Saul as the instigator of this entire act. He, he's the one that's behind it. In Acts 22.20, if you go ahead and, and open to Acts 22.20, Paul gives a testimony of this very day. This young Pharisee wanted to slaughter the church, and he no doubt launched the effort against Stephen. That, that is why they laid their feet, or laid their robes at his feet. This was a symbol of authority. This was a symbolic way to identify the man in charge. So it's fully understood that Saul was behind the stoning of Stephen, and he thoroughly enjoyed what he saw. What Saul did was watch these men stone Stephen to death as Stephen prayed for the Lord not to charge them with their sin. Stephen, who was full of grace, was showing these men grace even up to his last moments on this earth. I mean, guys, what kind of tenderheartedness is this? He, he showed no anger. He, he showed no vengeance. He, he showed no violence. He showed no retaliation. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is not how I would have been responding. But, but this is grace. This is what being full of the Holy Spirit does. And with that, he went to sleep. He was in the presence of the Lord. And isn't that what the Bible says? Absent from the body, present with who? Present with Jesus. So we flip over to Acts 2, and it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And the reason these devout men buried Stephen is because these Jewish killers didn't. These Jews who killed Stephen actually broke the laws because the law required a burial. These, these Jews were savages and left him there to die. But the church mourned the death of Stephen. And now we ask, would this be a crushing blow to the church? Well, no. Persecution of the apostles just led to more preaching. Now we see the first Christian martyr. I mean, things are getting serious. A Christian now has been murdered. And so we ask, is this going to slow down the advancement of the church? As I said, the answer is no. I heard John MacArthur say persecution to the early church was like trying to stamp out a fire. And in trying to stamp out the fire, you send the fiery embers into the air and they start a ring of fire wherever they land. So in other words, the persecution of Christians only causes the gospel to fulfill its intended purpose. It causes it to grow. Guys, remember what Jesus said. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Sumeria and then the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is why Acts 8.1 tells us that there arose on this very day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The church scattered. Except the apostles. I mean, right here, Luke tells us that persecution began the missionary effort to the world. Many in the church scattered, but the apostles stayed back. And the apostles stayed back to protect the church. Eventually they'd go, but, but not yet. But the main point is the murder of Stephen triggers the first missionary movement. And we're soon going to find out that the murder of Stephen launches the greatest missionary of all time, a man named Saul. And so we will always wonder what Stephen might have accomplished if he lived longer, but we are certain of this. His short life impacted the church on a far greater scale than we will ever realize. So Acts 8.3 tells us Saul was hell-bent on destroying the church. A fierce persecution broke out and it was led by him. I mean, the scriptures actually say that Saul began ravaging the church. And this word ravaging is only used 
this one time here in the New Testament. So we can't look anywhere else in the New Testament for context. So we have to go outside the New Testament. And when we do, we come up with some, some very interesting uses of this word. We see it's used in extra biblical literature of a wild boar ravaging a vineyard. It's used to describe a wild animal mangling, tearing apart, or shredding a body to ribbons. I mean, in the context of what we're looking at here, it was essentially just brutal cruelty. He was doing everything he could to rip and tear and shred. He raged against the church like a wild beast. I mean, look at his testimony from Acts 22. It says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted the way, meaning Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I mean, he was a vicious savage, even to women and children. I mean, the scripture says, Saul entered house after house to search for anyone who was committed to Jesus. He confiscated their property and then beat them and then dragged them off and put them into prison. And there was no exemption for women and children. And what did this lead to? Acts 8.4 says those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about. Literally, when, when, when persecution broke out, they, they scattered and, and went about the districts through Judea, through Samaria, preaching the word, preaching the gospel. And when the scripture says they went about, this refers to a missionary effort. This referred to missions. Guys, right now, just stop and put yourself in the story. I mean, what a sight this must have been. Multitudes of people in pain with nothing but the clothes on their backs, escaping out of the back doors of their houses with only what they could carry in their hands, pouring out of their hometowns, scattering everywhere, dependent completely on the Lord, without their livelihood, without any possessions. And they don't go hide. They didn't retreat. The Bible says they went everywhere, preaching the word. Guys, everyone was a preacher. Acts 8, 4-40 gives us insight into one of those preachers, Philip, also known as Philip the Evangelist. Why was he known as this? Because everywhere he went, he preached the word. And for the sake of time, we will briefly touch on him, but I encourage you to go read the story of Philip because it's truly amazing uh, the example that, that Philip was. And, and it's an example that we should follow. So Philip left Jerusalem during the breakout of persecution to Samaria. And obviously Samaritans were hated by Jews and Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So this was, this was strange. This, this looked strange, okay? Samaritans were half-breeds. They, they were known as heretics. They, they mixed paganism with Judaism and, and Samaria was absolutely off limits to Jews. But this is where Philip went because this is what Jesus commanded. And, it, and as he preached Christ to them, they believed. And when Peter and John, who were hanging in Jerusalem, caught wind of this, it says in Acts 8, 8, 15 through 17, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, speaking of Peter and John. So Peter and John were in Samaria, laying hands on Samaritans. Just a little side note. You remember the last time John spent time in Samaria? Yes, him and his brother asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. I mean, they hated Samaritans. But this time around, here, here they are. Peter's preaching Jesus, laying hands on people. John's laying hands on people, watching Samaritans receive Christ. 
Guys, what a change of events. But the point is, many came to faith all because of this one scattered believer, Philip. And there are likely many more stories that aren't documented, but you guys, you get the point. This is what true persecution produces. And when there's no persecution, what happens? Well, the church settles into a comfortable place in, in the culture and compromise happens. And how do I know that? Well, just look around. If you're in the West, look around. It's kind of like what we see here in America. Most of the church is busy chasing the American dream, not Jesus's kingdom. I mean, that, that, this is a whole other topic, a whole other episode, but how true is it? Guys, the early church was on the run and they wouldn't shut up about Christ. Even in the face of poverty, even in the face of imprisonment, even in the face of death, they preached the gospel and it spread. The church grew at a pace that we've never seen before. So at this point, Stephen's dead, but I, I, I believe Stephen's death affected and impacted Saul. He would never forget the day that he orchestrated the murder of Stephen. He, he would never forget that testimony that Stephen shared. And it was this day, I believe, that the Lord truly began working on Saul of Tarsus and changes in his life would be coming. God had big plans for Saul. Before we move on, let's just look briefly at who Saul was. Saul's home was in Tarsus. Tarsus was a city in Asia Minor right on the Syrian border. Today it would be the, uh, the border of, of Turkey and Syria. In Saul's day, Tarsus was a, a very distinguished city known for its university. It had one of the three great universities in the ancient world. I mean, think Harvard, think Yale, Princeton. Tarsus was, was a cosmopolitan city. Many cultures made up the population. Saul's father was a Roman citizen, but he was a Jew. So he passed on Judaism and he also passed on Roman citizenship to Paul or Saul. Saul's father was, was also a Pharisee. Therefore, Saul inherited that as well. Saul was so very Jewish that he gives a remarkable testimony in Philippians 3. I urge you to go read it. He points out that he was a very devout Jew. In, in keeping with the Jewish tradition, every young boy had to learn a trade. And young Saul was taught to weave cloth out of black goat's hair and fashion it into strips that could be assembled together to make tents. By trade, Saul was a tent maker. And this industry was common in Tarsus. And at age 13, Saul was sent to Jerusalem to study Judaism at the highest level. And the highest level teacher was in Jerusalem. His name was Gamaliel. And he was the best of the best. And that's who Saul sat under. And this would include years of memorizing the Old Testament and years of intense question and answer, debating the law of Old Testament. Saul became an absolute expert in Judaism and an expert in, in the Old Testament. Saul was rigid. He was zealous. He was legalistic. He was pharisaical. He was traditional. So we know that Saul went back to Tarsus after his years of school under Gamaliel and would have been a leader and an advocate of everything he learned. He, he was strict. However, by, the, by this time, the movement of the way, he, he's back in Jerusalem. And we don't know what brought him back, but he's highly agitated. And why is he so angry? Well, first, he's a Hellenistic Jew. He, he's a Jew from outside Israel. And this man, Stephen, who also was a Hellenistic Jew, had been traveling around the Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem, and he's preaching Jesus. Jews within Jerusalem were coming to Christ. Jews outside of Jerusalem were coming to Christ. The church was getting more aggressive and was expanding and exploding by the thousands. And he was infuriated. 
Saul most likely argued and debated with them many times up to the day of Stephen's execution. But on the day of Stephen, Stephen's execution, something in him switched. He, he, he went into a mode and his goal and intent was to destroy Jesus's movement. And, and he led the charge. Years later, he would be quoted saying this in Acts 26, 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in, in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Guys, this was Saul of Tarsus. And we come to Acts 9, and Saul was still in a rampage, still trying to stamp out this movement called the Way. Saul had done his damage in Jerusalem, and now he wanted to go find uh, ones who had left Jerusalem to continue the spread of the gospel. His goal was to hunt Christians down and get, and, and get rid of them. And he heard a group of them had gone to a city called Damascus, and he got permission from the religious elites in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, and, and that's where we pick up in Acts 9. Acts 9, 1 through 3 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So Saul sets off on a journey to put an end to Christianity, and he, he starts with Damascus. His very goal was the slaughter of any disciples of Jesus. He, he lived to arrest and kill any Christians anywhere. Eradication was his objective. I mean, think the worst uh, ISIS terrorist of our day. This was Saul. So with this authority, Saul takes off for Damascus. And we must understand what was going on here. There were likely many Christian converts there who were essentially refugees who fled to Jerusalem during the heavy persecution that Acts 8.1 speaks of. They were meeting in synagogues just as they did in Jerusalem. They, they would go in and they would preach Christ and they'd win many over. And the leader of the small church in Damascus was a man named Ananias. Nonetheless, Saul got word there was a Christian party going on and he, he was headed there to crash it. And he wasn't alone. He, he went with some kind of police, some kind of force, likely temple police. It was likely a six-day trip for Saul in, the, in this entourage. And the scriptures say they almost reached the walls of Damascus. And we come to Acts 9, 3 through 9. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So... They, the entourage, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I mean, wow, what a serious change of plans, a serious turn of events. I mean, Saul literally sat on his high horse and ran right into the Lord Jesus and then came to this momentous uh, conversion. I mean, we see right here, just like we've already seen up to this point in Acts, that this is a direct sovereign act of God on Saul's life. And, I, and I'll admit that all salvations are a sovereign act of God. 
but not all are like what Saul experienced. I mean, God usually calls us with a small, still voice, but with Saul, he, he called a devastating appearance. Based on this text from Acts 9, it was a very short description of what happened. But if you look at the details Paul gives from Acts 22 and then Acts 26, those chapters tell us it was about noon, that the sun was at its apex. In other words, it, it was a bright sun. But there was something far brighter because when we read later in Acts, this light that Saul witnessed was brighter than the brightness of the sun and it was a light out of heaven. This light was in their midst and Saul and his entourage collapses to the ground in terror. The men ended up getting up, but Saul remained flat on the ground, laid out. Apparently, the, the entourage heard a sound. They heard the noise, but they couldn't understand. They couldn't see anything, and they couldn't articulate the words they heard. They, they were just moving around trying to make sense of what just happened. They, they were dumbfounded. They were confused. But Saul, on the other hand, as he laid flat, the light breaks through to him, and he sees Jesus. And how do, I, how do I know he saw Christ? Well, the scriptures say these men with Saul saw no one. But Acts 9, 17, Ananias says that the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul. Saul saw Jesus. In Acts 9, 27, Barnabas told the believers in Jerusalem that Paul had seen the Lord Jesus on the way to Damascus. And then Paul tells us himself in Acts 22, 14 and 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that he had seen the righteous one. Saul saw the transcendent Christ coming out of the middle of this blazing, shining light. This wasn't a vision, guys. This was not an apparition. This was not a figment of Saul's imagination. He saw Jesus. Saul's radical encounter with God shows me that a person's salvation is totally initiated by God. Guys, guys as I mentioned, salvation is sovereign. Saul was going one way with no idea of turning to go the other way, and God sovereignly spun him around. Saul was on the wide road headed to destruction and God literally picked him up and put him on the narrow road. This absolutely changed the trajectory of Saul's life. And the moment he was knocked down and he saw the risen Lord, there was instant conviction. I mean, we read in Acts 9:4, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In side note, in Luke's writings, the repetition of a name like this implies rebuke. It implies warning. Think back, you know, when Jesus said, Martha, Martha, and Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or Simon, Simon. And then here, Saul, Saul. Jesus is here asking Saul why he's persecuting him. And what's the reason? Well, it's not like Jesus is actually here physically being persecuted. So why is he saying this to Saul? Well, it's his followers who are being persecuted. And Jesus is saying that he is inseparable from his people. And to persecute them is to persecute the Lord himself. Every blow he took at one of Jesus' followers, Saul was really taking a blow at Christ. And this is why later on in his life, Saul would gladly say, I'm accepting now the blows that were meant for Jesus. I bear in my body the marks of Christ. That's what he meant by that. Saul learned the great truth that he taught and lived. Every member of the body of Christ is a member of Christ and will endure suffering for his namesake. But at this moment, Saul doesn't know what's happening. He, here he is laying at the feet of Jesus in deep conviction. We know God initiated salvation here in Saul and the real issue is addressed. Jesus tells Saul, you are persecuting me. That's the issue of conviction that is essential. There are a lot of sins, guys, in the world, but the sin that is the most important is the knowledge of the sin of rejecting Christ. It's not that a man isn't a liar or a man isn't cruel or a man isn't unkind or deceptive or, or immoral. The, the crime for, for which people are sent to hell is the rejection of Jesus. 
that that's the unpardonable sin. This is always the issue. Jesus told us in John 16 that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin because they don't believe in him. That's the crime of all crimes, and it's unforgivable. And in this moment, Saul is smashed with that indictment. He is wounded. He, he finally grasped he was persecuting and rejecting the Son of God. And this leads to Saul's divine conversion. I mean, look at Acts 9.5. It says, and Saul said, who are you, Lord? I mean, guys, something dramatic has happened here. He, he refers to Jesus as Lord. We have to understand that in this moment, Saul doesn't even know who he's looking at. He'd never seen Jesus before. But even if he had seen him before, this was not going to be the same because this was the glorified Jesus. But either way, Saul quickly finds out that he has been indicted for persecuting Jesus, who is Lord. Saul is now acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. It's safe to say that Jesus has captured the attention of Saul and has filled him with the fear of conviction. He presented him with truth concerning himself. And Saul had heard the gospel already. Remember the defense Stephen gave for the gospel? Trust me, Saul knew the gospel well. He knew what Christians were preaching. And this is why he set out to exterminate Christians. So here Saul was standing face to face with that Jesus. He was standing face to face with the glorified Jesus and was wrecked. I mean, just think about how Stephen's words must have been playing in his head at this point. Saul was shattered and broken, now needing mercy. He had recognized the bad news, and now he needed the good news. So guys, this conversion, it was sudden. It was shocking. All of a sudden, Saul's doubts were erased, and he knew the truth immediately. That The battle was over for Saul. This was the moment his fighting against Christ ceased. So Jesus tells Saul, get up and go in the city and he'd be told what to do. And all the men, the entourage, they just stood around speechless. They, they heard a voice that they didn't understand and they saw no one. Imagine that. So Saul gets up off the ground, but when he opens his eyes, he's blind. The scriptures go on to say that the men had to lead him by the hand into Damascus and there he remained for three days and did not eat or drink anything. Guys, I mean, just imagine this shocking turn of events. Saul, a hard-hearted terrorist, turned broken, weak man in the blink of an eye. And now he lay blind in his thoughts with God, humbled, broken, wrecked by who he was. Formerly a blasphemer and a murderer, now completely stripped of everything, bare before the Lord. And the Bible says he communed with God. You want to know what Saul was feeling? during his three days as he laid there blind? You turn to Philippians 3, and it was Paul who wrote, whatever I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I mean, he thought of all he had accomplished in his life, and he accomplished much. And he counted it trash. He, he counted it garbage. In some translation, manure in comparison to knowing Jesus. I mean, this is one of the many internal testimonies in the New Testament because Paul wrote about this a lot. Saul was instantly converted. He was instantly submitted and surrendered and obedient to the very one he was trying to destroy. It's unbelievable. Here was Saul at the house of Judas over on Straight Street, blind as a bat. At this point, the leader of the church in Damascus that I mentioned earlier, Ananias, he receives a vision from Jesus. And Jesus tells Ananias in Acts 9, 11 through 12, Hey, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
for behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I mean, guys, this is absolutely amazing. The Lord here gives Ananias a vision of Saul and gives Saul a vision of Ananias. So Ananias knows to go see Saul and Saul knows Ananias is coming. I mean, this is God miraculously creating a basis in which these two men could meet. I'm just sitting here wondering how I would receive this command if I were in the shoes of, of Ananias. I mean, Jesus basically told him to go see the one uh, who was once a notorious terrorist, who, who the entire church was terrified of, and lay hands on him so that he would regain his sight. I mean, let's be honest. I, I'd be thinking, hey, he's blind. Let this, let this guy stay blind. But it's the Lord who assures Ananias and eases his fears. If you notice that Jesus told Ananias that Saul was in the house fasting and he was praying. But Ananias, still reluctant, responds in Acts 9, 13 through 14. He says, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those that call on your name. So this shows me that Ananias is still unsure. Essentially, in the midst of this vision, he, he's having a conversation with the Lord. He's saying, I'm not sure I want to go do this. I'm not sure I want to go find this guy. I mean, the whole idea of going to find this guy, Saul, seems like a bad idea. Remember, at, up to this point here, Ananias had no idea about the Damascus Road encounter. He had no, no idea about Saul's conversion. All he knew was what he had heard from many people about Saul and his relentless mission to destroy Christians. But the Lord encourages Ananias with the fact that Saul is praying and communing. This is to let him know that Saul is now a member of the team. He's now a brother. Because then Jesus tells Ananias in Acts 9, 15 through 16, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the, the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of, of me, the sake of my name. I mean, the Lord is essentially saying to Ananias, you have nothing to fear because Saul belongs to me now. And I'm commanding you to go and will be with you. And because I've chosen Saul to be my vessel to preach the very gospel he had persecuted, he will bear my name. Acts 9, 17 through 19 tells us that Ananias did as the Lord commanded. He trusted the Lord. He went and found Saul. He laid hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. First notice Ananias addressed Saul as brother. Brother Saul. Guys, this is what Jesus does. Jesus brings us into fellowship, brings us into family. Immediately the scales fall off of Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately Saul was baptized by Ananias and the scriptures say they enjoyed a meal together and Saul had regained his strength. Guys, here's the reality. Saul's old life of sin and shame was put to death and he was a new creation. Immediately Saul was Jesus's man. The Lord would regenerate Saul and that would begin on this day. Saul had many usable characteristics. He had leadership, strong willpower, self-discipline, high motivation, pers persistence. He was inflexible in his convictions, self-sufficient. He was independent. He was bold. He's practical. He's strong. All those things were Saul's by creation and development and experience, but they were, they were used wrong. And on this day, the Lord would begin to refine Saul and take these usable characteristics and apply them to kingdom advancement. The Lord would, would then replace the unusable characteristics, the, the hatred 
the animosity, the bitterness, the anger, and would replace them in Saul's life with love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. They sound familiar? Yes, they're the fruits of the Spirit. Saul would become the model of humility, which was a far cry from what he was prior to the road to Damascus. But this is what the Lord does in, in believers' lives, guys. This is what he did in my life. This is why I'm convinced of who God is because there's no answer for transformation like this. There, there's no answer for those who go from notorious sinners to ambassadors of Christ. But what is the answer for such a 180 degree shift? Guys, it's the true act of God. It's the true power of God. It's God's grace. Here's the deal. When you have a new master, you live in a new sphere with new, a new life. You, you have a new mission to serve him for the rest of your life. You have a new power for that service. A power that refines what is usable in you and replaces what's not usable in you. And that's the working of the Holy Spirit, guys. And it's amazing. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Come back next week as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Next week, we, we're going to continue to follow this story. Saul is radically changed. He, he begins preaching the gospel immediately and we're, we're going to see what happened to Saul. Saul was so bold that, that news spread quickly that Saul um, had, had been transformed and, and he began to run for his life. He, he would run for his life where he would be prepared for big things. And while he was gone, Peter would continue to move by the power of the Holy Spirit. But next week, we see the book of Acts shift from Peter to Saul. We will jump into this next week, so, so please come back. Guys, before I go, I want to remind you to continually be asking yourself this question. What does this story of God mean to us? And what does it mean for us? Who are we in light of God? Friends, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you're following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You are chosen. You are a royal priest. You are part of a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. You have been called out of darkness. You've been caught out of the grave and into his wonderful light, into a life. And now you're, you're to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. Do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, man, that's okay. Most are not. But come back next week because the point of this podcast is to walk this journey together and discover together. Guys, I'm currently learning myself. But together, we will learn our identity in Christ and we will step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. Until next time, take care.